We continue in this series, Relational Healing, and it's funny that I begin this series, and maybe it's just when things like, you know, you do something like this, you begin to see things that aren't maybe there all the time, but I, I can't believe how much in the papers there has been these conflict situations or potential conflict situations that, that you see. I mean, you see it all different places, but could, could kind of stand out the last week or so with President Obama being called a liar during the joint session of Congress by a South Carolina representative, Joe Wilson. There's a little conflict there. Um, Serena Williams, in the final points of the U.S. Open match, goes postal over a foul, um, a foot foul, and threatens to stuff a tennis ball down the mouth of the line judge. A little bit of conflict right there. Rapper Kanye West just um, storms the stage just after the first award for best female video is presented to a innocent 17-year-old Taylor Swift. Swift's big moment is cut off as Kanye grabs the mic and delivers one of his infamous rants, this time not for his behalf, but on behalf of some other singer, Beyonce. And I, I look at those things and I go, it's almost bizarre, right? That's really out there. And, and it's really easy to feel a little bit cocky, kind of like, can't believe those guys. Until I began to think about it. And I ask you to think about this. Have you ever been so angry that you blurted out what you were you know, just feeling without thinking? And then from the other side of the table, when you think of that Obama situation, how would you feel and how did you feel if you were so disrespected or publicly something was said of you like that? How would you respond? Or I think of the Serena Williams thing again. Have you ever been so caught up in the, in the heat of the moment that you said something that you really regretted? And then put yourself in that uh, line judge's situation uh, in, a, in a place where maybe you felt so threatened by what someone else said. How did you respond to that in that conflict situation? Or Kanye West, have you ever done something really stupid? I mean, really stupid. So much so that, uh, you know, you know what that's like. There's people around in their, in their hearts, if they don't do it out loud, they're, they're booing you like, what a jerk. Or have you ever been in that situation, like a Taylor Swift, where in a moment, which was a great moment of celebration and surprise, someone steps on that moment so rudely? It's a moment you'll never get back. How do you, how do you handle that? What do you do with that person? What's your response? How do you handle conflict? Do you go to attack? Do you start to kind of load your weapons in the fight? Or do you shrink back out of fear? Do you run from the relationship and say, forget that? Do you avoid conflict and keep peace at all costs? How do you deal with the conflict that surrounds you? Last week, as I shared on the first message, where we talked about conflict and, and made the point that conflict is inevitable. It's just all around us, right? It's not something that we won't experience. 
My guess is every person in here will experience some kind of conflict tomorrow. May not be major, but you'll experience some kind of conflict. Someone will do something stupid. Someone may say something that you take in a certain way. You may be offended, or you may say something that you regret it. And so we talked about it. It's inevitable. And we also talked about the fact, because it's inevitable, conflict calls for us, according to James last week, it calls for a heavenly, kind of an otherworldly kind of wisdom that is a supernatural wisdom that comes from above because our natural patterns of dealing with conflict are the ones often that are learned in the very setting in which we grew up. And our conflict resolution skills are trained in that environment. And what amazes me in any social setting, just like here in a church, what we do is we bring all kinds of people who come with the the, the conflict resolution skills that they learned in their family, and we create a whole new family with all that stuff, right? You do that in businesses. You do that if your kids in your school or your teams that you're a part of, and you all come with these different abilities. And the natural paths primarily are two. And one is to move into a place of attack where you use your force and aggression to get what you want, or the other is to move to avoidance. And in both cases, it doesn't strengthen relationship. And so the Word of God is really clear. In James, James says you need a godly, you need a higher kind of wisdom. And so what I want to talk about today is the kind of path, the the direction that God calls people who want to live in peace. The, the, the word shalom in, in, in the Old Testament and in the Hebrew is this idea of this kind of peace that is with God and with other people in all creation. It's this settledness of, of things are right and they're good and they're healthy. And so what does that look like? Jesus actually modeled it. He taught about it. And he actually told us it's a blessing when you have that kind of experience. But yet again, when it's inevitable, how do you live in it always? Well, you live in it by following a certain path over and over and over again so that it becomes the path that is routine in your life and it becomes natural, but it's supernatural because of the infusion of God's wisdom and His Spirit as you seek to follow Him. So that what was once a natural path now becomes natural as you enter into this life experience with God. And if you haven't experienced a relationship where you've opened your heart to God and said, God, would you begin to lead me and teach me? It's not about a bunch of rules of do's and don'ts. It's, it's really about a life that is in relationship with one who knows how to live life and shares principles with us through his son, Jesus, that we can follow. And as we walk like he walked, as we begin to understand the word of God as what it intends for us to do, and that is to live in relationship where we understand this peace, we begin to experience what the Bible calls the blessed, or in some versions, happy life. This life where God's favor is upon us. Turn to Matthew 5. Because this is the passage of Scripture as we get into this a little bit later in the message that I, I want us to really look at. And it's one that you may be really familiar with if you've had any exposure to the church as you grew up. Matthew chapter 5 is this interesting setting where it says um, Jesus sees the crowds, and so he goes up on a a mountainside, really it's a hillside, and he sat down, which is a characteristic way a rabbi would often teach. They'd sit down and people would be 
down below him so that you could project, he could project his voice. And it says that he, they sat down, his disciples came to him, and, and then he began to teach them. And he started his message in this way. Blessed are, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. One of the wonderful things about Jesus is he is not one that you find often this kind of teaching from his lips. You should or you ought. It's really interesting. Jesus is the kind of teacher who basically stands up. God is the kind of father who basically says to us, this is the way things are. This is reality. You can either live to choose to live in it or choose to not live in it. If you choose to live in it, you experience good things and the blessings and the favor of God. doesn't mean you won't have conflict because, as I said last week, conflict is what? It's inevitable. And our response to it is usually natural. But if we open our hearts to him, there is a supernatural ability by his spirit for us to respond in new ways, which will become natural to us, which will allow for his favor and blessing to dwell in us. And that's why Jesus says, blessed are. It's a fact of life. Here's truth. It's no different if if I was to say to you, um, you want to be careful because when you leave church today, you want to look both ways if you're walking when you cross the street, because if you don't, you could get hit by a car. It's not a should or an ought as much as that's a reality. And if you accept the truth of that, you will experience some good things. If you don't and decide to say it doesn't really matter to me and walk out, you could really feel some pain. And a lot of people are feeling pain in their relationships because they don't understand some basic realities of what it means to live in a blessed, favored relationship with God and with other people. And so he begins this, and he goes, blessed are, blessed are. But what I want you to note is he drives to verse 9. And I'll explain that later, too, as I, what I mean by he drives to verse 9, because he's moving it all to this, I think, statement, blessed are the peacemakers, for they'll be called sons of God. So if you want to know this kind of life, what kind of person do you need for God to make you into, to become? What does a peacemaker look like? How can you develop the heart of a peacemaker and evidence those characteristics that allow for his blessing to flow through you in relationship with others? Well, the very first thing that I want you to hear, if if conflict is inevitable, what I want you to know, peacemakers then see conflict as opportunities. Very first thing you understand. Peacemakers see conflict as opportunities. Perspective is everything. There's a girl after a difficult emotional relationship with a, with a guy, and she finally broke up with her boyfriend and said, once he was all the world to me, but I've learned a lot of geography since then. You may be in a situation where you just haven't really understood or at least come to grasp with the fact that conflict's inevitable, and then this truth that should open your eyes. And that is conflict is an opportunity for you as a peacemaker. It is an opportunity to see the work of God move through you. So once you settle the fact that conflict is inevitable, that it surrounds us and it's going to be a part of our life because we live in a world where people are sinful and selfish and they do things that are stupid and you do things that are stupid and, you know, all that's going to happen. Well, then you have a choice of how you want to look at life. 
As one person said, it's not your position that makes you happy or unhappy. It's not your position that makes you favored or unfavored. It's your disposition. It's your perspective. So how will you view the conflicts that come into your life? Are they accidents? Or could they be assignments from God? Think about that for a second. Do you look at all conflict as it comes to your life as some kind of accident? They said, oh, shoot, that it just zigged when I should have zagged. You know? Are they battles to win? Are they power struggles to overpower? Are they situations to avoid? Sometimes there are things that you can't avoid. But sometimes when you're standing on a stage and you're just ready to receive an award and some guy comes up and grabs the mic, you, how do you avoid that? How do you avoid the fact that at some point you may tell someone something they don't like to hear and they come over you and they want to stuff something down your throat? You see, you just can't. So you have to make a decision. You have to say to yourself, if this is a reality in life, God, then I want to look at conflict in the way that I think you want us to see it and how you want us to approach it. And the way you want us to approach it is to recognize the fact that in everything that comes into our life, it's an opportunity to serve you. It's an opportunity for you to use this in our life in a way that is different than what I would have normally thought I could do. And you begin to see these difficult experiences that come into your life is really ways for God to come in and instruct you. They're almost God-appointed instructors. You kind of look at the conflict and go, you know what, here I have an issue, this is here, but God, you're here in this, and you are going to teach something to me through this. And so do you believe that every conflict is an opportunity to show what you really think about God? Think about that for a second. This is really where the rubber meets the road. Every conflict you have is an opportunity for you to reveal to the world around you, to reveal to the angels and the demons and all the things in creation, it says, for them to look, who are looking on to see what is Kevin Meyer going to deal with this situation and how will it ha- deal with it. And as he does it, does it express and how does it express he, what he really believes about God? Not what I say I believe, not what I think I believe, but what I actually believe. So I want you to stop for a second and think of a conflict in your life. And I'm not going to ask you to think of the most difficult one but that may come to mind. But maybe you can think of one that you even just had this last week and it's just there. And, and you, you know in your heart that in your, in your heart of hearts you want to go, I want to just push this aside. I'd not like to deal with it. And it may be that God is just kind of going like this on your chest going, this is an instruction for you. It's not an accident. It's an assignment. See, conflict are not some minor annoyance, nor are they major obstacles to what we want. But there are opportunities that God wants us to use. Conflict is truly an issue of stewardship. For those of you who say you follow Jesus, you are a manager of this experience. It is an issue of stewardship. Jesus was his heavenly father's servant. And he had lots of conflict in his life. And let me just share with you, he's not the one going around saying stupid things. Now, a lot of people thought he said stupid things. They said, you know, Jesus, tone it up. You know, you're not politically correct right here. If you would just say this, this way, that you would experience. And then he goes, no, I've got to speak the truth. And yet he was still wise and didn't purposely go around and try and create conflict. But Jesus was amidst conflict, whether it was the Pharisees who were angry and the scribes who didn't like the way that he was living his life, or it was his disciples who were walking along behind him going, you know what, 
I think I'm going to be closest to him. I think, no, I'm going to be. And Jesus has to step in. And he is constantly, I believe, in these situations where he is a steward managing this opportunity for God. Now, if you can, if you can in your mind and in your heart begin to grasp this, this principle, which I think is so important, peacemakers live their life with an understanding that the things that come into it aren't accidents, but opportunities for God to use. Even when you foolishly do something that creates it. Every conflict for Jesus was a situation as an opportunity to serve his God, recognizing that which could be completely negative, God had the ability to turn around into something positive. In fact, before your favorite, some of your favorite Bible verse that Paul wrote in Romans, before that was actually made scripture, Jesus lived it out. He actually believed what Romans 8.28 said, and that is that in all things, yes, even conflict, God works for the good of those who love him. And, and we have, through this stewardship opportunity, the ability to express from our hearts this opportunity of God using it and for us showing, in a sense, and revealing in us. And God uses this to reveal what we truly believe about him. Do we really believe he's sovereign? Do we really believe he's going to be faithful? Do we really believe he's good? Is he really a kind God? Does he really care about me? Is he really patient? You name all those things. There are three opportunities, I think, in every conflict. There is the opportunity to glorify God. There is the opportunity to please and honor God by trusting and acknowledging and obeying Him rather than your self-centered natural desire. There's the opportunity to say, God, I, I understand what's going on, and instead of using my natural path and to use my force to get what I want and create harmony so that everyone's afraid... Or to do the other one, which is to say, I can't handle this anymore. I'm just going to avoid it and just hope it gets better. And if I, if, if I, as long as I can keep a person from getting angry, I, don't, I won't tell them the truth. As long as I can keep them from getting angry, I'll call that peace. And there's an opportunity to acknowledge in these situations the power and the presence of God. Not, not that this situation is going to change to your favor or that there will actually be resolution there can be reconciliation there can be oneness but there may not be always resolution of that but there is this possibility for you to glorify god to do what he asked you to do and as you do that for him to be glorified that's your responsibility just your responsibility there is another opportunity too and that's the opportunity to serve others in every conflict, there's an opportunity to love your neighbor as yourself. There's an opportunity for you to show mercy and to be kind. There's an opportunity for you to display the fruits of the Spirit in a way that you would want them to display it in your life. There's an opportunity to look at this situation and say, man, if I was in this situation, how would I like this person to serve me and to love me? God, I want to honor and glorify you. I want to trust you and move into this rather than move away from it or move in a power sense over it. I want to move into this in a way that I truly love and I seek to understand. I still speak the truth and I will move into this thing so that things can begin to be resolved. And it may be that as you seek to do that with another individual, you may need to bring someone else to help you deal with that, to help be a peacemaker. 
And we actually have people in our church through a peacemaker's ministry who are trained to help you do that. And I just encourage you, if you're in a situation and you want to be involved, we have a counseling ministry. We also have a, a group that comes along that will help people work through that. There's also a third thing. There is an opportunity to personally grow. There's an opportunity in each of these situations for, as I said, to express what you really believe about God. And as you begin to move into it, for God to do a work in your heart that creates within you those fruits of the Spirit. Because you know what? When, when the game all is done and we put everything back into the box and you stand before your Maker in heaven, He's going to ask you to give an account of all these things. And the whole point of this game in life is to help is to use our lives to, to love others, but also to become like Jesus. That's that growth part, personally for you to grow. That's why these are opportunities, because every opportunity that presents itself in conflict is a way for God to begin to kind of shape our heart. And I have to share with you, conflict isn't fun. It's painful. And, and don't let anyone ever make you think it's something that's easy to do. The next point I want to share with you is, is simply this. Peacemakers, they do the hard work of making peace. I kind of said that last week about the idea of a farmer who, who it says in James, they sow in peace in order to make a harvest of righteousness, to bring about a harvest of righteousness. Now, I want to stress this again, that the development of the character of Christ in you is not something that shows up immediately. It is something that by the fires of conflict even itself, God brings into our life in order to melt away some of the natural patterns so that he can begin. As you begin to follow him and you do it again and again and again, and you get into this habit of listening to him and following the course that he set out that I'm going to share with you in just a moment, he will begin to form in you the heart of a peacemaker. And in time, that which feels not natural will become natural supernaturally. Okay? And so here is what we find if we get back to Matthew 5. And I want to share with you these verses 3 through verse 10 specifically. We often, I, I don't think we understand that Jesus is using, I believe he's using these verses to drive to a point. He has an end in mind. They're not just nice little poetic sayings. Jesus was not the kind of teacher that got up there and just, like, let me recite some poetry I was thinking of the other day. Blessed are. He, I believe he looked at people and he had these, I think these first few verses in this was a part of the message. He gave that message, drove to a point, said, okay, break time, go ahead, get something to eat. And then he called people back. We, we think that Jesus got up and spoke for two hours. I think he was the kind of preacher. He used this message in other places. And he used it. You can see it in Luke. He used it in different places. And he's always driving to an end. He has a point in mind. When he starts out with these blessings and he talks about being poor in spirit, about mourning, and he moves through these things, he's moving to the point of the blessed person is really a peacemaker. And all these things I've been talking about, if you really are that kind of person, you will become, like the Son of God, a peacemaker. I was uh, with the elders this weekend. We had a kind of a mini-elder retreat, and we, we met on Friday night, and I had given them a book by a guy named Tim Keller. 
called The Prodigal God. It's a small book. It's an easy book to read. It's a powerful book. If I could, I would assign it to all of us as a congregation. I think it is that powerful. We went through it, and, and we were moved by what some of the things. We, we went chapter by chapter and just talked about the different things in it. One of the things that hit me for the first time when you read about the prodigal son story, Luke 15. I've heard it as a kid growing up. I had the great blessing that some of you may not have had of growing up in a church where I heard the Word of God. Some of you, it may be the first or few times that you've ever come here and you're hearing it for the first time. But I had this opportunity. And when I had heard about Luke 15, what we always focused on was the lostness and the incredible prodigal love of God towards those who are lost, wayward. You know, their sin had gotten a hold of them and, and, and it's caused them to live in some situations that created great pain in their life. And in the midst of that, God calls them back. They see their need and they return back home to the Father. And so he, he has this point after he talks about a lost sheep and there's a hundred and one of them is lost. The shepherd's love is so great that he goes after the one and the lost coin and this woman who loses it. It's so important to her that she will sweep out everywhere in her house. She'll move all the furniture to find this one lost coin. It's all about the love of God. Then he has this son who, who chooses to rebel. He says, I want my estate. He takes a third of the father's estate and he takes off and he goes and he spenders it and spends it and squanders it. And the, and, and the father is so in love with his son that he stands out by the edge of his property, looking down the road, waiting for his son to return, which is something a father who is a, a Jewish um, father in that day would not do. And I remember hearing all about it, but I didn't realize this, that when it starts out, the message begins because Jesus is, has standing around him. It says the, 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 the sinners and tax collectors and, and the, the people who were kind of looked down upon as like the younger son that ran away, they liked to gather around Jesus. They were, in fact, the people we think who are really messed up, they, they're the kind of people, if Jesus had a church, they would be coming to it. And so they were gathering on a continual basis, is what the verb means, around Jesus. And the ones who were self-righteous, the churchgoers in that day, were standing on the side and they were going, I can't believe this Jesus rabbi guy. Because they were still questioning whether he was the right guy, legit, etc. Can't believe this guy. I mean, I, I think he would let them have it, these guys that are messed up. And it says they were muttering and speaking these words. And Jesus watched that and noticed that. And he began that message because he wanted to share how much he loved the lost younger son. But what's really interesting, the whole point of that message is to get to the elder brother. If you read it correctly, it's to move to the elder brother. When he gets to the elder brother, he says the father comes and he gives all this stuff to the younger son and he throws this party and the older brother stands outside. He's angry. He's belligerent. He can't believe. Look what I've done for you. Look how I've worked for you. Look how I've slaved for you, dad. Look at all these things I've done. And the younger son comes home and you give him all this stuff and, and he's angry. And the father comes out again. Something a father would not do. To, to come out in, in an undignified way when his son is ranting and raving and basically making all these kind of statements about his dad to the other people who are on the brother's side. He comes out, which a father in that day wouldn't do again, with all this disgrace. And he pleads for the brother to come in. In his self-righteousness. And it ends 
with you asking the question, will the older brother come in? It ends with the idea that these Pharisees and scribes and self-righteous church-going people who are on the outside, angry about the love that this father would have for the son and for the lost and all this, this father has the same love for these guys standing here. And he's in a sense appealing to them and he's asking them, instead of standing on the outside and muttering and doing all that stuff, would you come in? Okay. Long setup for Matthew 5. But I really think there's some truth to this. Jesus begins, and he says, if you want the character of God, if you really want to be a peacemaker and not avoid it, or not to use your power to create fear so that you control situations so it looks harmonious, the peacemaker does the hard work of asking God to come in and make him this kind of person so the reality of life would begin to flow through him. The peacemaker faces their fear, grabs hold of the hand of God by faith, looks into the issues right into the eye and says, I'm going to move into it by the help of God. And here's what he says, beginning in verse 4. Peacemakers. Verse 3, I'm sorry. Are poor in spirit for those who came to God. The way I would write this is peacemakers are dependent on God. Whenever you go into any kind of conflict situation, you don't go in with your skills and your ability, you know, all my conflict resolution skills or whatever it is. The first thing you do is say, God, this is a situation with another human being who was created by you in his likeness, who needs your love and, and your life and your truth. And, and I just am asking you to come in. I am going to be dependent on you. I recognize in this situation the poverty of my own perspective here. I'm going to ask for you to be a part of this. Even if it means that I've tried it once or twice and I need to bring someone else in who has God's perspective and wisdom to help make this thing happen. I'm going to do the hard work of being a peacemaker. And it begins by being a person who is poor in spirit. They're dependent on God. And then I think he moves into it and he says, because he's driving to peacemakers, because you have to understand... Genesis begins with conflict between God and man, Adam and Eve. They sin. They have conflict with themselves. Their sons, they have conflict. One gets killed. There's conflict with their son's sons, and there's conflict all the way through the Bible. And the whole point of Jesus' coming is to make peace between God and us and one another. So that's why I think it's so important he's driving to this. So the second thing he says is not only are they poor, dependent on God, but verse 4, they're aware of their sin. A peacemaker will be blessed because there is this mournful state in their own heart. They're not just people who are just, oh, poor me. They actually, when they see and they come before God and they say, I want your perspective on it. And God, would you look at this whole thing? And as you do so, look at my heart and where there is sin and where I have offended or where I have done anything. Would you, by your grace, point it out? And when they see it, guess what? They mourn. Because they recognize it really hurt that person. I was, it's kind of silly, but I was really upset about this Kanye West thing. My daughter showed me this thing. I, I'm thinking to myself, what, what a jerk. I'm watching this thing. And it's like, like one person said, it's like stepping on a kitten. A 17-year-old, a moment that you'll, you won't get to do that one again. And I, you know, I saw it and I was getting ready to run. I had, and I, so I took off. I'm on my run and I'm thinking, what a jerk. And, and all of a sudden, it was like, seriously, it's like the Holy Spirit goes, listen, jerk. <laughs> you ever done something really stupid before? You ever arrogantly lived your life and hurt people? 
And I'm going, yeah, I did. I do. And I will do it again. And I don't want to be that kind of person. So you, you become dependent on God. You begin to mourn. You recognize your sin. You come into those situations gently from blessed are the meek, they'll inherit the earth. They're the ones who are going to see God do a work because they don't come in to force things. They don't come in in their own strength. They actually they have strength that they speak truthfully, but they do so in gentle and kind in ways that allow for the relationship to begin to hear one another. In verse 6, peacemakers want reality. They hunger and thirst for righteousness for they they will be the kind of people filled with what's the blessing that God talks about. They'll be filled with His presence. Because more than anything else, they hunger for it. They want to be in an honest and right relationship. Denial, they understand, doesn't deliver. Pretend in their world doesn't cut it. And people who are really serious about this, they go, God, I hunger for the kind of relationship you want with me that I want with you. I want that with others. And so when I come across those things, if it's not an offense that should be just overlooked, if it's something that needs to be dealt with, if it's a conflict that has to be dealt with, I ask that you would come in so that we can have a real intimate relationship as best it can be. Because you can't determine what the other person is, but you can show up with yourself as best you can present with who you are. And when you start living that way, you hunger for that. In fact, that's the only thing that tastes good. Pretend superficial relationships just isn't something that is real filling. And then he goes on and he says, peacemakers, they give mercy. I, I don't know too many conflict situations where there isn't the need for mercy and often forgiveness. We'll talk about forgiveness next week because forgiveness is the critical piece in all this. But I think Jesus says, you know what, the merciful, you become merciful, you'll get mercy back. It's not to go in and blast someone. It's to go in and to say, here's the truth. I want a changed relationship. And you do it on mercy. And then verse 8, peacemakers are genuine. They're pure in heart. And those people who are pure in heart, they see God work. And then it gets to verse 9. Peacemakers They'll be called sons of God because they actually have the characteristics of God himself who loved us so much that he sent his son because he knew we were separated from. He knew that our sin and our selfishness had a price to it. It offended him and it has hurt other people. And there's no way that you can get rid of the guilt. There's no way you can deal with the shame eternally unless you receive the, the, the forgiveness that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. And when you begin to understand that, you begin to mourn and you understand your sin and the, the hurt it's caused and you ask. The only thing you could ask for from a God who is holy is forgiveness. And he gives it. And you begin to do that with other people. And you look like Jesus when you do that. And then I think the reason he adds verse 10, the way I, I just rephrased it is peacemakers are willing to risk it all. <laughs> I think he's, you know, blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness. Peacemakers will do what is right no matter what the cost. When you start sharing the truth, there's times you're going to be persecuted. There's going to be times where you'll suffer. There's going to be times where you will be rejected. That person will say, hey, I don't want to hear the truth. And in not hearing the truth, they will also reject you, the bearer, bringer of the truth. That's what people did with Jesus. So let me ask you to, I'm going to ask the ushers to come down and to give you this little, what it's called, a peacemaker's pledge. And as they come down, I'm going to, 
ask you to, to look at this today. You may want to do this today. You may want to do it during this service at some point. But I just want you to look at there's some basic steps that I think need to be taken that comes from a, a, a book by Ken Sandy called The Peacemaker, another book that would be should be required reading for believers. But he says these principles are taken. It's a glorify God. Just what we've been talking about. Get the log out of your own eye. And he gives some ideas there. Go and show your brother their fault or what you feel your, the offense is. And there's scriptures under all these. And then go and be reconciled. Instead of settling for pretend, instead of talking to someone else about it, make those things right. I believe this is so important as I have been praying about it. Because I really want us to have a culture of peace as, as people. That we would become a church and, and, and God's Spirit would move in such a way that we would have those kind of whole and healthy relationships. So I'm going to ask the, the band just to, to play and let the Spirit of God speak to your heart and then I'll come up and close.